0: Apple Music Classical elevates your listening experience like never before. Enjoy a catalog with over 5 million tracks and find just the one you want with a powerful new search. You can even Shazam classical music pieces playing around you, then locate them directly in the app. Save your favorites and add them to playlists or explore expert recommendations for key composers, instruments, periods, and more. Apple Music Classical, the app designed for classical. Included with select Apple Music subscriptions. Now in the App Store. And Welcome to Opus 204 of the Triloquy Podcast. My name is Loki Karuna. A pleasure to have y'all back for another week of the show and for another week of highlighting the intersections of race, identity, and so-called classical music. Shout out to all of the returning listeners, all of the day one listeners, and everyone who's joined the Triloquy family along the way. I do this because you listen. Thanks so much for your continued support. To all of the new listeners, if this is your first time checking out the Triloquy Podcast, this is a show built to decolonize classical music. Each week I bring in a dialogue that I've shared with a change maker in the arts that I think is doing important and significant work to be highlighted. And uh, hopefully it will inspire you to think about how you can make this art form more equitable and more relevant to today's world and to today's audiences. For more information on Triloquy, to learn more about some of the people who make this show possible, and to contribute to the cause, hop on over to our website, trilloqu I'm very pleased to feature this week my recent conversation with Nazir McFadden, who serves as the assistant conductor for the Detroit Symphony Orchestra. But as promised, I'm gonna address my name change before we jump into that. This week is gonna be a bit of a personal opus <laughs> of the show, a deep dive uh, into me for a little bit. So, uh, as longtime listeners know, I started practicing Nietzsche and Buddhism a few years ago. I chant Nam Myoho Renge Kyo every day, and the benefits that I've experienced from taking on this practice are numerous. The fact that I'm sitting here talking to y'all <laughs> in itself is a testament to the power of this practice. If you're uh, curious about what Buddhism could do for you and for your life, please don't hesitate to reach out. I'd love to start you on your own personal journey. But I bring this up because in my early days of Buddhist study, I decided to dive right into what I'd call our foundational writings, something known as the Lotus Sutra. I won't spend a whole lot of time getting into it. Again, reach out if you want to learn more. But throughout the Lotus Sutra, there are examples of bodhisattvas who embody different human traits that Buddhists look to as uh, examples of how to create harmony with ourselves and with our environments, and most importantly, with the people that we deal with on a day-to-day basis. For example, there's a Bodhisattva in there known as Never Disparaging. This was someone who always found the good in a person, no matter how (laughs) ungood they were. There's Bodhisattva Awesome Sound King, Bodhisattva Wonderful Sound. There's a Bodhisattva Medicine King and all sorts of characters in there. Well in the 25th chapter of the Lotus Sutra there's a Bodhisattva named Perceiver of the World's Sounds. He's highlighted as a Bodhisattva who has limited limitless rather compassion for human Beings and someone whose power is so great uh, that he can relieve the sufferings of people in all walks of life and and all uh, situations. I'll, I'll read uh, just a little bit of the opening uh, of this 25th chapter uh, from the Lotus Sutra. It says, At that time, the Bodhisattva, in intent, immediately rose from his seat, bared his right shoulder, pressed his palms together, and facing the Buddha, spoke these words. World-honored one, this Bodhisattva, perceiver of the world's sounds, why is he called as such? The Buddha said to Bodhisattva inexhaustible intent. Good man, suppose there are immeasurable hundreds, thousands, ten thousands, millions of living beings who are undergoing various trials and sufferings. If they hear of this Bodhisattva, perceiver of the world sounds, and single-mindedly call his name, then at once he will perceive the sound of their voices, and they will all gain deliverance from their trials. So as you can see there, this is a pretty significant friend of the Buddha that we're dealing with here, someone who can just, again, as I said, relieve the trials and stresses of of everyday people. Well, of of all of these different names, again, Never Disparaging, uh, uh, Inexhaustible Intent, Awesome Sound King, these are translations. uh, And most of these original uh, Hindu names are (laughs) kind of hard to pronounce. Many of them are 30, maybe even 40 uh, uh, letters long. Well, the Hindu name for Perceiver of the World Sounds is Avalokiteshvara. Now, still remember The first time I read uh, about this Bodhisattva, I was so inspired by the idea that regular old human beings like you and me could be a source of safety and inspiration for other people, as it's outlined uh, in that 25th chapter of the Lotus Sutra, that I decided to do more reading and to learn more about Avalokiteshvara, or Perceiver of the World's Sounds, as uh, as he's known in English. Well, after lots of reflection on this character and with lots of chanting, I decided to follow in the footsteps of many of the change makers and thought leaders of the past, and to elevate my name into something less colonial and to something that's more in line with my life's mission and my life's purpose. So I actually took the name Avalokiteshvara and shortened it to Loki, which is the name that I go by now. It's really mystic, as we Buddhists say that uh, this character's compassion is a prime trait um, to. Uh, rewind several, several years ago. The first guy I fell in love with back in high school, someone who I'll call Ethan for the sake of anonymity, um, he was of Thai descent. And as a cute little puppy love nickname. Uh, he used to call me Anurak, which is a Thai word for angel. Well, if you actually spell that word backwards, you get the Sanskrit word for compassion, the word Karuna. So that's where my last name comes from. Uh, I am indeed in the process of going through the legal name change change. Uh, which is more difficult for men than women, <laughs> by the way, if you didn't know. It's almost as if the patriarchy doesn't mind a woman taking a man's name, but as soon as a man takes the name of a bodhisattva, there's suspicion of evading taxes or something. I don't know, um, but I digress. My my point is, if you want to write me a check, <laughs> my full government is still valid, Garrett McQueen, but otherwise, I'm very happy to move forward into the next phase of my life as Loki Karuna, someone who's dedicated to changing society, to de- colonizing this art form of so-called classical music, and uh, to doing so with compassion. Following my conversation with Nazir, I'll share uh, some more personal updates, but how about we go ahead and uh, and get into this week's dialogue? I want to be compassionate for y'all's time here <laughs> listening. Um, I was particularly excited to speak with Nazir because... I have personal history with the Detroit Symphony Orchestra where he works right now. Uh, So right out of grad school, I won the DSO's African-American Fellowship chair, and it was hell the whole time. In Buddhism, we talk about the 10 worlds of existence, with the highest world being nirvana or Buddhahood, a state of unwavering happiness, and the lowest of those worlds being hell. Child, the DSO had me in hell, (laughs) the only reason... I was compelled to practice enough to eventually win my chair with the Knoxville Symphony was because I needed to get out of there as soon as possible, and I needed to leave that position with another orchestral job. I wasn't going to have those musicians saying, oh, I guess he wasn't very serious. So, oh, yeah, that kid couldn't really cut it as an orchestral musician. No, I can. And I did. (laughs) At the end of the day, I just felt like people with the Detroit Symphony were trying to sun me. All the time trying to convince me that my age correlated with my skill as a musician, which no shade. Most of those folks couldn't rewind their job today if they had to. But let me stop and pull from a uh, Bodhisattva never disparaging <laughs> by saying uh, that as difficult of a time that was for me it was extremely useful. There was so much poison that I've turned into medicine from that stage in my life. And getting to uh, dialogue with Nazir McFadden uh, is sort of a a full circle moment, not only in in my life's trajectory, uh, but in my celebration of Black folks uh, in the field doing their thing. So uh, Nazir McFadden is cutting his teeth with the Detroit Symphony Orchestra as a conductor and he's doing so while being unapologetically black so here's a performance led by maestro Nazir McFadden to get us into my conversation with him hope y'all enjoy
1: Yeah, you know, I think we're in just like Detroit, a bit of a renaissance period. I feel, you know, we're starting to engage more with new audiences, while still keeping some of the the uh, some of the attention of older audiences. You know, we're we're changing the way that we present music. Uh, we're changing the music that we play, and I think it's it's. Working on both ways. We're finding new ways, especially with the addition of uh, recorded performances, both audio and video. Uh, The accessibility of our orchestras is definitely changing in a good way, I think. And when I'm on the podium, I've conducted many different types of concerts. Um, So it's interesting seeing what audiences respond to, um, whether it be the type of music, the venue that we're playing at know how we're presenting the concert even how we're dressed you know it's it's interesting and it's it it changes from orchestra to orchestra the the uh the types of uh initiatives taken to to increase you know diversity in our concert halls but also just to increase engagement with our orchestras It's, it's pretty interesting i think
0: yeah, I want to go back to that video accessibility piece because I'm sure you love the feeling of getting all of those uh cheers and you know, all of that applause from right there in the room. Does mm-hmm. knowing that you have, you know, thousands, maybe even tens of thousands, more people watching digitally, does that have an impact on your approach? Do you have a preference to people being in person or virtual? I wonder what your ideas there are.
1: Sure, of course. You know. We're live performers for the most part. Um, it's always great to have a packed house and to hear the audience applause up front and in close. Um, I say there's nothing like coming onto the stage to a round of applause before you've even shown if you're worthy of it. <laughs> it's always no. great. Um, but I think there's something else to be said about our um, our viewers online. They are just as important. And sometimes even more important than the audiences in the actual concert halls, um, because they're not just from whatever city you're in or mm-hmm. the location that you're presenting the performance, but they can be from anywhere in the world at any time. And then to have the ability to go back and watch it to relive that music making, you know, there's nothing better than that. And I think that's something, you know, so many organizations and conductors are starting to appreciate more and want to find newer ways. To present these concerts because, you know, accessibility is the key. Being able to indulge in art and whenever and wherever it's, mm-hmm. you know, it, that's the best thing about what has come of the pandemic. I'd say are these video and audio recordings.
0: So, what do you see as your role? in this audience engagement, audience development beyond just making sure that you're preparing the orchestra in the best way that you can? Is there a sort of spokesperson role that you <laughs> see yourself in for the DSO? What are some of these non-musical aspects that you also take on as assistant conductor?
1: I, I, I make it a mission after every concert talk to go out into the audience and to the atrium, to speak to the, to the, patrons, just to see how they feel about the music, how they feel about my concert talk, or s- some things that they're excited for. Those are, audience interaction is so important. And so, in some cases, more important than just presenting a concert, getting a real understanding of, you know, what the audience needs, what our community needs and what they wanna hear. Um, that's important because without the audiences, what are we on stage for you know yeah what are we doing what's the point so hearing from the audience and and understanding what they want is important for me as an assistant conductor because then i get to relay the message to the music director or the artistic staff and this ties into programming and the types of concerts whether it be educational neighborhood family concerts um the communities that we go into and present those concerts you know that's where my role kind of plays into it because I have the direct access to the administration and artistic staff.
0: So let's rewind. Well before you had a baton or stood on someone's podium, <laughs> what what was your musical upbringing like? How did music come in, into your life?
1: You know, like so many black musicians before me, the church well, so it started the in the, church. the choir then. You know, I wasn't directing anything
0: <laughs>
1: I was more more so in the back of the in the pews um, with the rest of the children I remember so my my family they're all pretty much church musicians or related to church music in some way, shape, or form. Um, but I remember vividly every Tuesday and Thursdays attending uh, the music production require uh, rehearsals and I I always tell the story, but it's so true. I would they would sit all of the kids in the back, and we would finish our homework, or we would play, or do something. And I I would always find myself sneaking from pew to pew, up up closer to the musicians. And my my uncle played the drums at the time, and I would always find myself just sliding behind him, um, just so I can get a clear clear view of everything that was happening. But what really drew me in was the the music director and you if you've been to a black church you know there's so much energy and life within you know church music and I grew up in a Baptist church so that's like <laughs> peak energy but y'all really were in holla <laughs> they were having church <laughs> <laughs> so I I was always in awe of the the dancing and the the harmony and the singing that everyone was doing but most importantly the conductor and how how uh, they were able to just capture all of this emotion within their hands and the body and the facial expression, you know, that stuck with me, but it wasn't until fifth grade that I, um, that I was formally introduced to, to, uh, private lessons and instrumental lessons. And originally I wasn't selected for the band. Um, so I did with any... A fifth grader would do or a young child. I threw a temper tantrum. <laughs> <laughs> I kicked the desk, threw my papers off onto the floor, and just refused to do my work for the day until my teacher, Ms. Caron, um, I'll never forget this woman. She came to me. She said, what's wrong, baby? What are you doing? Um, I said, you know, I, I want to be a part of the band. I know music. Um, my family, they're musicians. I need to be a part of this some way, shape, or form. And she didn't say anything She just wrote a letter took her about 30 seconds. She wrote a little letter and said, take this to the band teacher. Next thing you know, I was signed up for band. Um, I don't really know what the letter says to this day, but I think, you know, I think she saw me signing up for the band, or her telling the band director to put me in the band was a way to teach me like discipline Mm. drive and to teach me the importance of sticking to something and completing it, um, we all have this obligation or children have an obligation to go to to school and to do well. And, you know, it was wrong for me to say, I'm not going to do my work just because I didn't get my way. (laughs) And I think she saw that as a way to, you know, teach me that that's not okay. And that we all have a goal. We all have goals and we all have something that we need to complete and see through to the end. Um, So I'm, I'm forever grateful to her. Um, But from fifth grade on music completely, you know, captivated my life and all of my attention was focused to music and conducting, playing clarinet kind of just became intertwined and became my everything.
0: So what I'm thinking about now is the fact that, and and maybe I'm stretching here, but you know, you basically told just your teacher, you're not getting this spelling test until I'm I'm in the band. (laughs) You know, I wonder if, you know, putting your foot down in that way has any connection to uh, the confidence that you have to bring to the podium. You can't be up there shaky. You can't be up there seeming like you don't know what you're doing. You you really have to put yourself forward in, in that way. You know,
1: yes and no. Um, of course, when you're on the podium, you need to be completely confident in your values and your musical choices, as well as the composers. And you mm. have to have the trust of the musicians. But I don't quite think, you know, at fifth grade, that I was there yet. <laughs> I think that was just my adolescence kicking in, and you know, just throwing a temper tantrum. I don't think, honestly, when I look back, I don't think there was any more than just me not getting my way and being a brat. <laughs> but I'm I'm grateful that I was a brat in that moment um, because where would I be without it? And, and I would like to just say thank you and give kudos to Miss Cologne because where would I be without? or any other teacher could have said, you know what, detention, or you know what, get out of my classroom or something like this. But she saw it as a way to teach me um, the importance of maturity. And she she saw it as a life lesson and I'm forever grateful for that. But I don't think there was anything, you know, I don't think I was thinking consciously <laughs> about, you know, being this this um, this figure of importance or I don't think there was any of this. It was just, me being the kid and not getting my way. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> well, you spoke to, you know, how as an early, you know, uh, child, as a young child at those church rehearsals, how you just wanted to, you know, see it all. And we can definitely, you know, uh, I can definitely draw a line between that and your uh, desire to be a conductor. But I wonder if you can speak to the actual transition <sighs> from one side of the ensemble to the other side of the ensemble? When when did conducting begin to take place? And how did you cultivate the confidence to know that it was something that could actually be possible for you professionally?
1: You know, this, in a way, when I look back, I know I'm kind of contradicting myself, but in a way, I always wanted to be a conductor. Um, I didn't know it then, but I used to break plastic hangers. And I remember in fifth grade, sixth grade, I used to break plastic hangers and wave my arms around.
0: Breaking your mom I didn't know.
1: Oh, I got in trouble. But, <laughs> you know, I didn't know what I was doing with my hands. But I knew that I was able to connect to the music in a way that I couldn't do with my clarinet. This was, you know, I was gone away with the idea of sitting up straight. N- don't cross your, your legs. Mm-hmm. Perfect posture. I was able to move my body. I was able to really dive into the music and and feel it not only on a mental way, a mental way, but it, I was able to physically you know, move to the music. I was able to physically uh, indulge into it. It was just, I don't know. I think I always had this passion, but never really knew what it was. But throughout the years, um, as I progressed with clarinet, you know, I really tried my hardest with clarinet, and I honor band and, and orchestra and all of these things. But I, I remember vividly sending emails at, in seventh grade, all the way up to 12th grade, sending emails to every local music organization begging for the opportunity to, to conduct, to mm-hmm. observe a rehearsal, to speak to the conductors, just a chance to learn. And I got so many no's. Um, I never stopped. Because Miss Cologne, she taught me, you know, if you want something, you have to work for it. My dad always says, closed mouths don't get fed. Mm -hmm. So I continued to send those emails and I continued to make opportunities that weren't there. Um, Something that I tell my students now is that, you know, if there's a door in front of you, knock on the door. And if it won't open, kick it open. You know, Mm -hmm. you have to make, you have to make way for your, for yourself. You have to be your own advocate. And, you know, that's what I did. and conducting just happened to come along the way. So I was able to conduct my youth orchestra, to conduct the, the, the district and all state orchestra, all of these things. I was even able to conduct the Philadelphia Orchestra just because I chose to, to keep at it. Um, and this led to me going to DePaul University, where I was the first conducting student that they've ever had. Oh, wow. Um, I was able to work with Maestro Cliff Kolnath and Maestro Ricardo Mufti. It, it was just like these these amazing things because I refused to quit. And I, I always, like I said, I tell my students, you, know, you have to make way for yourself first. Um, and now I'm here at the DSO. <laughs> so it's just if, if only that, if only someone would have told that little fifth grade Nazir, you know, you're on the right track, even if you aren't doing the right thing, you're on the right track. Um, it's amazing.
0: You know, the audition process for musicians can seem uh, really mystifying for a lot of people outside of the field. But I would say even more so is the process of becoming a conductor, an official conductor of an orchestra. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the process, you know, the the road between you're looking for a gig and you're officially being announced assistant conductor of the DSO.
1: Well, for conductors, I should make the comparison first for instrumental musicians, trying to get into the orchestra um, as opposed to conductors. For instrumental musicians, you know, you practice, you go to school, you may freelance here and there, get some playing, some playing uh, experience, and then you audition and eventually you win an orchestra job. It's cut out, it's very put together. For conductors, there's no route. Um, there, there's no concrete route because there's mm. so many ways you can go. You can go the competition route um you can go the the assistant conductor route but even before that you know you you are not allowed to s- technically study conducting hmm. until you, after you've gotten your bachelor's degree then you can go out and get a master's degree which i understand you need to w- know the anatomy of the orchestra and how an orchestra works you have to know what it feels like to play in an orchestra or an ensemble um i don't agree with this hmm. because Conducting is one of the art forms that you don't understand as soon as you start doing it. It takes so many years. Even after 20 or 30 years of conducting, you're still considered a baby. You you still don't have the knowledge or the understanding of the repertoire. Um, So it makes sense to start from a very, very young age and to learn by doing. You know, you don't learn by observing everything. Some things you have to learn by actually, you know, taking the time out to do um, and to experience to make those mistakes. Um, you have to be allowed the freedom to be vulnerable on the podium because that's not something that comes naturally. You know, when you're conducting rehearsal, everyone's looking at you, everyone's listening to you. You have mm-hmm. to know, you know, how to speak to people. Something as simple as that. You have to know when to let things go. Um, even if they don't quite work with your interpretation and that only comes from experience. So for me, um, I didn't, I don't have every, or the standard conducting route. I'm pretty sure if you talk to many of my other conducting colleagues, we don't all have the same route, but for me, I can speak to my, my experience. Um, so unconventional, I'm only 22 and yet I'm at the helm of this. World class orchestra. How Mm -hmm. did that happen? Um, I'm grateful to the Detroit Symphony Orchestra because they they were willing to take a chance on me. They knew, even in my audition, even in the interview, that I didn't know everything. That you know, maybe there are other qualified people, but what they saw in me is this this drive, this willingness to put my everything into it and to not give up that I got from fifth grade. You know, that one lesson changed my life. Um, so they're, they're helping shaping, they're help shaping all of my musical ideas and to make, to put it into the right track, you know. Like I said, there's so many things you don't know unless you do them. You don't, you can't learn from your mistakes. You don't know if you're doing something right unless you have the opportunity to do it. So I'm, I'm grateful to the DSO for this.
0: Yeah, that age dynamic is something that I can't help but to think about a lot. I mean, you have to or or, or maybe I'll just ask, how do you feel, you know, being in charge, for lack of a better phrase, of musicians who have literally not only been, you know, playing in this orchestra for decades, but have been playing the pieces of music in many cases that you're rehearsing for decades. How do you approach bringing your ideas and your perspectives to musicians who ultimately have been doing the thing longer than you've been alive?
1: It's very intimidating. Um, but I have to remind myself, I'm here for a reason. And I'm supposed to be here. Hmm. You know, They saw something in me. If they didn't, I wouldn't have gotten the job. You know, They saw that I was worthy. So I have to believe that I was worthy. I have to be my own advocate. Um, of course, I have to study and be informed and listen to as many recordings as possible and really understand the music. I have to work harder, of course. Um, but I, w- Whenever I start a rehearsal, it's, it's important to listen before you say anything because mm-hmm. sometimes the orchestra has better ideas than you have. They've gone through this music so many times they have, they know the traditions. They know the things that work and that don't. They, in most cases, they've played the music more times than you could have listened, sure. experienced, everything. Um, so, you, for a very for a young conductor like myself, you never should go into any music making situation thinking that your way is the end all be all mm. because there's so many other, so many other interpretations and ways that the music can go. So, you have to be, you know, there's a, there's a push and pull. You have to be accepting of new ideas. And you have to know when to let things go. But you also need to show that you have you, you have curiosity, that you're curious. Can we try this? Can we do this? You have to be you know, confident in what you think and how you think the music should go. Because how do you expect people to follow you if, if, if you're confused? You know, how do you expect people to want to play under you in a really well way? If you're not confident in your choices and that's something that I'm still trying to figure out Um, because I'm so young, because I don't know everything, you know, I'm trying to figure out, okay, is this right? Are they going to be receptive to this? And I have to, in a way, fight myself and it only makes me work harder to, to get the answers that I crave, you know?
0: What's your engagement with repertoire? I know that you know maybe not everything that you conduct is a piece of music that you selected to conduct, but I, I wonder in uh, in your experience so far, how do you engage programs that you didn't select? And then you know what would be your ideas on repertoire that you would put to the front? You know when you do have the freedom to select repertoire.
1: So I will say, thus far in my career, I've had the incredible. Privilege of having almost 100% creative control oh, wow. over my programs. Um, all of the music that I choose here at the DSO or guest conducting, I've gotten the opportunity to choose. Um, of course, there've been little insights, and I've had to rethink some things. But for the most part, I've been able to choose all of the music. Now, this is where I run into the problem. It's, I have a bucket list, of course. But mm-hmm. what happens when I've crossed everything off? You know, so it's up to me to be informed and to, to really dive into recordings and to past programs and look at other orchestras and their programming to really get an understanding of, okay, maybe I want to try this piece or try this piece. And this is also is why new music is so incredibly important. You know, collaborating with living composers is something that I I value so much because that's how you learn about, you know. You know how things actually work in the composer's mind because it's so easy to say oh well beethoven wrote a piano so it must be piano what type mm-hmm. of piano is it you know or he wrote an accent is it an accent in piano or an accent in mezzo forte is it an accent that really should be played well or maybe it should be subtle you know it's not until you work with the composer you get an understanding of oh this is how you know they're thinking of the music and that's a very valuable and vital important like a vital vital um, experience for a young conductor to have to be able to work with living composers there's nothing like it
0: so how do you engage a general expansion of the the repertoire you know beethoven and brahms they're they're great they've also from the perspectives of many myself included contributed to a part of the status quo that we're working to dismantle i wonder how far uh, you're willing to push how far you feel comfortable pushing when we're talking about not only more diverse composers, maybe even more diverse aesthetics coming from the stage.
1: Yeah, I'm willing to push as much as I'm allowed. Um, I always, when, whenever I'm programming something, I think it's so important to have more than one new piece by mm-hmm. more than one demographic or background. And I'm willing to push the message of whatever program that I'm trying to perform just to see if I'm able to do so. And thankfully I have been able to, to you know program in a way that makes our audience curious about the composer and the music that makes the audience really want to go and do their own research. This way they come back to the orchestra. So there's a full circle, um, a full circle event that happens when I'm programming, when I'm conducting the concert, speaking to audiences, and then rethinking about future programs. I'm always thinking about how one another complements each other, and what I can do differently for each concert.
0: Is there a different approach to programming when you think about concerts that will happen in community or away from the concert hall? It seems like Ah, uh, concerts that take place at orchestra hall. you You have the people there. You have people that are interested in being there. There's a certain opportunity there. It seems like there's a different set of opportunities for concerts that take place at houses of worship or or other venues that aren't orchestra hall.
1: It's very important, especially for orchestras in this day. it's so important for us to show that we can be diverse and that there's more to classical music or instrumental music than just Beethoven and Brahms, like you said. So always, I'm always looking for arrangements of popular music. I'm always looking to collaborate with local musicians or poem, poets or artists even. Um, we just did a, a community concert here in Detroit with uh, Mar- Pastor Marvin Winans. Mm. And this was one of the most important concerts to me because I grew up listening to his music. Of course, coming from the church, I knew his catalog very well. So. Being able to find those those arrangements of his of his musics of his music showed to the audiences you know maybe this is for me maybe maybe I might not like Brahms or Beethoven or maybe I'm not you know interested in it mm-hmm. but they're still able to cater to my needs and they're able to play my Spotify playlist in real life sure. you know that's that's important to be able to you know have the versatility to change up your programs to cater to specific audiences. You know, it's the same thing that any anyone in the arts should be able to do, and I hope that they're striving to be able to.
0: Yeah, I always tell people, you know, in my days playing with the Detroit Symphony, I don't remember a concert that was as jam-packed, standing room only, than the Wayne Shorter Esperanza Spaulding Pops, you know. Oh. I think there are things like that that, from my perspective, if we uh I hate. hesitate because I don't want to use the word "normalize." What I really mean to say is just making it happen more often. You know, not a once a season or twice a season thing. You know, the idea that people can be engaged from where they are musically. You know, from from their lived experiences, as often as the Beethoven lovers are are engaged by by our by our orchestras. Do you think there's a a road forward for that reality? The idea that people who love R and B, for example can visit their orchestra many times a season and get that itch scratched, so to speak.
1: Yeah, and I think we're on that road. Um, Of course, we can do more. We always can do more, and we can present it in different ways. Our our subscription concerts shouldn't be the only concerts that get recorded Mm -hmm. and put on demand and live stream. We should also be doing the same for educational and for Pops concerts. And if possible, even the neighborhood concerts, it's important to show, like I've said, it's very important to show that we're versatile, not in just our programming, but in the way that we present the concerts, in the way that we react to different audiences, because I I specifically remember doing the concert where, you know, maybe some of the orchestra some of the uh, reactions from the audience kind of start with the orchestra or may have started with certain guess but that's just showing appreciation i know from the church it's it's normal to say oh yeah like the shout out oh yeah that's that's good or well (laughs) exactly it it would be so strange so i think it's also important for us to to normalize the way that audiences react to our performances Um, and we need to be receptive of that and we need to encourage it and hopefully that translates into our subscription concerts clapping it's just because they appreciate. It shouldn't be looked at as a taboo or something. You know, It's appreciation, and we need to show that we appreciate the way that they appreciate us.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, one thing that I want to make sure that we do talk about is the fact that there are certain orchestras across the country, uh, namely Atlanta, Memphis, Detroit maybe Birmingham, that have the unique opportunity of being in cities that are predominantly Black. There, There is that audience base to serve and to engage. Is it significant from your point of view that you are a Black conductor in an orchestra that lives in a city that is predominantly Black? Are Are there lines between those two realities that you actively draw in your mind?
1: Of course. And it's nothing more than just representation you know it's so important for young musicians young black musicians to see that they too can do it and that they belong you know i remember growing up seeing little to no black conductors Mm -hmm. or black clarinetists i can name a handful as opposed to anything else it but being in a black city is so important. It's important for us to show that we deserve to be here, that we can be here and perform at the highest level possible, but also that we can play our music, that we can play others' music, and that we, we should be able to show the excellence that is bl- being black. You know, I, I think it's, it's nothing more than just showing representation. Um, that's what it is at the, at the core level, just showing that we're supposed to be here and that we can do a damn good job at it.
0: Yeah. I think about conductors moving around a lot you know be you, you speak about you know being deserving of being here many conductors aren't here for <laughs> for very long at least uh, not as it relates to musicians and orchestras who can be there for 30 35 40 years I wonder if you see your role um, at the DSO as more permanent than not do you have any aspirations uh, any specific orchestras that you would dream of being the music director of one day um, so not I know my role. All listening, here. you know,
1: <laughs> I, they should be listening. <laughs> um, you know, I know my role here as an assistant conductor is not permanent. Any assistant conductor, I think, anywhere in the world, the role is not permanent. But that's by design. It's so that we can learn and grow and continue to, you know, relay the information of our audiences and the 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 comments of our audiences to artistic team. It's so important for this to constantly be changing because if there's one person who stays here forever, you know, you don't get that variety and you don't get the new ideas or the new ideas start to become old, frankly, frankly. Um, So I know in my, my career, I'll move around and conduct many different orchestras, but, you know, I'm from Philadelphia and there's nothing more in the world that I dream of than becoming a music director of the Philadelphia Orchestra. You know, when I conducted that orchestra in 2017, I believe, at a pop-up concert, I I told Maestro Yannick Nezes again on the podium, you know, I'm next. And (laughs) everyone laughed, everyone laughed in the hall. I don't think they meant it in in a bad way Um, because it was funny, you know, the 17-year-old saying, I'm going to be next. I told, I told him on the podium, you know, I'm next. And when I saw that his contract was extended, I said, perfect. <laughs> because now they can't, they can't hire another conductor for, what, another nine years? Mm-hmm. This way I have enough time to mature and become better so that I can be the next music director. But in all seriousness, I'm willing to go anywhere and to be a part of any organization that's willing and that it's in their mission to change classical music for the better and to make it more accessible, um, more enjoyable for all. I want to be a part of an organization that's willing and able to to present classical music and music at the highest level possible while catering to to all audiences.
0: Are you still in communication with uh, Yannick?
1: Yes. Actually, when I won Detroit, uh, <laughs> he sent me the most heartfelt message, and it was just, you know, he knows I'm next. <laughs>
0: <laughs> We're speaking it into existence. Uh, oh, so, yes. be- But before I offer my last question to you, I wonder if you have any words for any other aspiring conductors, maybe of, of any age. What would you say to the person looking to pivot their careers onto the podium?
1: Um, Honestly? Be yourself, I know you hear it all the time, but it's so incredibly important to be yourself, to trust yourself. And just like I've said earlier, you know, if there's a door, knock on it. If it won't open, kick it open. Mm-hmm. You have to be your own advocate. Closed mouths don't get fed. I'm trying to give you all of the metaphors possible. <laughs> Honestly, it's so important for you to be your own advocate first, and to make any opportunity work for you. Even if the opportunity doesn't present itself, you know, make it known of your presence.
0: So I was actually going to close by asking you about one of the bucket list pieces on your list. But maybe we should get more specific now that you have named that you will come after yannick as the music director of the philadelphia orchestra your first concert you got family there you got friends there the whole church has bought tickets and they're in the (laughs) audience what is the piece of music that you want to present to them especially for those of them for whom that may be their first time listening to an orchestra being in 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 an orchestra hall what are you bring to the stage (laughs)
1: you're really putting me on the spot (laughs) you know my my favorite piece of all time it's the first piece that i ever played in an orchestra it's the first piece that i ever conducted was the borzak's ninth symphony and i know that orchestra has such a understanding and a history of playing and recording that piece i think every music director has done it um that is one piece that has stuck with me and that I know and understand so well. So of course, the project nine. And I think right now, you know, as 22 22 year old Nazir, I think I would pair it with Margaret Bond's Montgomery variations. That is a piece that I think every orchestra should have on their radar right now. It is such an incredible piece and it's incredibly powerful. Um, And if we're staying on the same the same uh the dvorak plane i'm gonna say maybe his violin concerto okay Mm, maybe even his cello concerto his violin or cello concerto i mean those are those are two fantastic pieces and i think would really really complement that program um but i think that the 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 tie between montgomery variations and what the what the Borjak would have heard when he came to to the US is so inco- incredibly important to showcase and we can bridge the two of new and old implementations.
0: by Antonin Dvorak, realized, re-realized, I'll say, by the Publi Quartet. If you were able to catch my guest spot on Sirius XM last week, you heard that bit of music in context of the larger work, but it's always great to hear people honoring Dvorak's legacy in a way that speaks to his respect for Black people and Black music. Shout out to Maestro McFadden. He says he's next in uh, Philadelphia after he leaves Detroit, so I'm going to help him speak that into existence myself. Looking forward to hearing about what's next for this incredible up-and-coming music director. Hope you enjoyed our conversation. All right, I have a little triloquy for y'all, and we're going to transition into it with some more black music. Here's an interpretation of the opening track from Beyonce's Lemonade album as performed by the song's writer. This is Kevin Garrett performing a bit of Pray You Catch Me.
1: You can taste the dishonesty It's all over my breath As I pass it up, so cavalier But even as a test Constantly aware of it all My lonely,
0: pressed against the walls of your world. Praying I catch you whispering. Praying you catch me listening. I'm praying I catch you whispering. Praying you catch me. Nothing else ever seems to hurt like the smile on your face. So maybe y'all know that uh, Beyonce wrote and and, uh, produced her Lemonade album with intention. Jay-Z had the audacity (laughs) to cheat on Beyonce. And she showcased her grieving and her healing process uh, over the course of this phenomenal album. If you aren't familiar with Lemonade for some reason, please check it out. Really incredible body of work. I have it on vinyl and everything. Well, I've been listening to this record lately because I've been going through my own bit of grieving and healing. Last week, I posted to my social media accounts that my partner left me. Well, the truth is I saw him as having left me because I found out about my own version of uh, Becky with the good hair. I'll say again, if you know, you know, check out the album. Well, I really appreciate everyone who sent me a note and offered support. It was definitely a really challenging few days for me, and it will continue uh, to be a challenge. But at the end of the day, I decided that I wasn't ready to walk away from my relationship. Uh, I'd been watching a lot of media that talks about relationships uh, being work relationships is something that uh, require a lot of intentionality. Uh, a relationship isn't just something that is; it's something that is maintained um, and nurtured. And I had all of that in mind when you know going through what I went through last week. I'm sure your relationship is absolutely perfect. I know, but I've learned that mine is not. There are communication issues that he and I are addressing. Uh, We're being more intentional about the time we spend together and we're being as absolutely honest and transparent with each other as we can be in all aspects of our relationship. All of this stems at the end of the day from that really challenging moment of knowing that there was some woman waiting in the wings for me to get out of the way so that she could swoop in. This is a really perfect example of what we Buddhists call poison into medicine. My first reaction last week after I learned about this woman was to buy a ticket to New York and just leave everything behind and start a new life. I mean, I was booked on a Delta flight and everything with a one-way ticket. But before I went to the airport, I decided to come back home just one more time to dialogue with my partner to close the chapter of the book. Um, I'm not sure that our utmost honest and compassionate state of being would have come through without the pain of that moment. I'm not sure that the road four for us would be what it's going to be, um, you know, truth filled and intentional without that painful moment. I know for sure that thanks to Becky with the good hair, my par- my partner and I will develop an even stronger relationship than we have before and. I'm really looking forward um, to that opportunity and really grateful for the opportunity for both of us to take a step back um, and to continue to develop the relationship that we both deserve to have with each other. Uh, a lotus blossom, you know, speaking of the Lotus Sutra and all that stuff from uh, earlier in this opus, a lotus blossom requires a dirty, muddy swamp to exist. You never see uh, a lotus growing in a field or, you know, even out of a flower pot. They, they exist in the muck of a swamp. And it requires that. Its beauty requires that environment and that context. And in many ways, the same is true for our very lives. Whatever you're going through right now, consider it that swamp. Consider it something that you need to have the perspective to live a greater life moving forward. Whatever your challenge is today, see if you can't contextualize it as something that will inform your next steps. Consider your life's challenges or whatever event or problem that's going on. Uh, once you solve it, um as something that will result in a greater you. That's certainly the case for me and Dell. Um, I'm again, and I'm sharing this just as a clear example of, you know, not only how my Buddhist practice has inspired my life, but the intentionality. Um, and the long suffering and the sacrifice and the commitment that relationships require, whether that's a personal relationship, a relationship with so called classical music, or Anything. Um, So, for what it's worth, I hope you will uh, consider that. Take my lived experience uh, over this past week as an example and do what you can to turn the poison into your life, the poison in your life into a bit of medicine. Thanks as always for listening. Hope you didn't mind this week's deep dive into (laughs) bits of my personal life. But again, if it can inspire something in you or for you, that's what I'm here for. That's that's my job. Visit Triloquy.org and uh, throw me a couple shekels if you can. always appreciate the support. And I will talk to y'all again next week. Peace. Nam-myoho-renge-kyo.